live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Good evening and welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are up to part three of our series on Budapest. We have so far covered from year 1000 to year 1686, at which point the Ottoman rule came to an end. And now we're about to wrap up Budapest. Right. So firstly, Mazel Tov for the baby that well, you had you. yesterday. Well, I wasn't going to mention it. Right. Everyone is okay, we hope. Yes. Or the I reason hope. I'm here is because why should our listeners suffer? Because of... <laughs> Our simcha, but also probably just to get a bit of peace as well. Right. Okay. I hope so, my wife isn't listening. I'm sure she would agree. Um, but that the baby was sleeping when I left. For all concerned. And but the, thank you. And the babysitter is there. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, as you mentioned, the Imperial Austrian forces defeated the Turks in Buda in September 1686 in a fire which broke out either spontaneously or perhaps the result of arson, a large part of the city was destroyed. So beyond the war, there was also this calamity, and the destruction included the shul. This reconquest of Buddha meant the end not only of the Jews' presence in that city, but also in all of the cities of Turkish-dominated Hungary, And it took several decades before Jews again settled in Buddha. And even then, they were expelled by Maria Theresa in 1746. However, the landowners of the big estates, particularly in the west of the country, faced a drastically reduced population in many parts due to war and dislocation. So, for instance, in the 15th century, there are approximately 4 million people living in Hungary. In 1720, there are only three and a half million. And uh, by way of comparison, the population of Europe increases in that time from 80 to 130 million. So the landowners need to find workers, uh, settlers for their newly reconquered lands. And to attract immigrants, they promised land for cultivation. In 1690, Prince Paul Esterhazy settled Jews in the city of Kishmarton, which is Eisenstadt, that's a German name, and it belonged to him. And they become his Schutzjuden, his protected Jews. What do you mean by the town belonged to him? Just that. In other words, the Habsburg Empire controls all of Hungary, but large pieces of land, including small towns, are owned entirely by the landowners. And because it is therefore private properties, They could have Jews reside there, even at a time where Hungary's laws forbade Jews to become residents of a a city. These Jews weren't residents. They were almost the private guests of the landowner, sort of. And you find, for instance, um, from the 1710s on, Count Zichy's family allows Jews to settle in Obuda, which, as we mentioned, is nowadays part of Budapest. And by 1785, there are 285 families there and their respected rabbis. They're fully set up, whereas 
literally down the road in Pest, there are no Jews because it was a city. And that means that most Jews at the time lived on the estates of big landlords, primarily in uh, Western Hungary, the seven communities, the famous uh, Shevak Hilois, which include Eisenstadt. And each one has like a German name, a Hungarian name. Muttersdorf, one of the seven, is called Nagimarton. And Deutschkreuz has a Hebrew name, which is Tselem. Um, so that's where you find most of the Jews living. Whereas within the cities, there was an anti-Jewish attitude because of the clergy, because of the uh, merchants who were jealous. And that continues well into the 1700s. So it sounds like life was a lot better in this uh, private controlled area. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there is a disadvantage of being under the private control of nobility was that the Jews didn't have one single sort of decisive power to which they would normally have been beholden with certain duties, but with rights. Now they're exposed to the whims of whoever had power. And if members of the Jewish community are attacked, um, they had to request, request uh, protection. And the intervention often came slowly or too late. So that is the drawback. But having said that, there is a significant immigration into Hungary from neighboring countries, which proves that the, their position in Hungary was still better than Jews in adjacent places, even in other provinces of the Habsburg Empire itself. You know, take um, Vienna, for example. There's no Kahila there until the 1800s, at least no Ashkenazi Kehillah, because surprisingly there was a Sephardi one, which is a long story in its own right for another podcast. And Jews now have increased in number in Hungary, and that provides Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria, with the opportunity to impose in 1746 a new tax on the Jews. It's called the Toleration Tax. We Christians have to tolerate you Jews in our midst, so you have to pay for the privilege two florins annually for every Jewish man, woman, and child. And What's that roughly in today's currency? People earned approximately uh, maybe eight florins a week. So I don't know what that translates into, um, 60 pounds, something like that a year, um, very roughly. In 1749, the toleration tax was 20,000 florins for the whole community. By 1813, it's gone up to 160,000, meaning that the government estimated the number of Hungarian Jews at 10,000 in 1749 and 80,000 60 years later. So the reason I asked before what it was in today's currency is I was wondering whether there was financial gain or purely to suppress that. No, it was they're, they're very Clearly much from the numbers, was, it looks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, this was no longer the Middle Ages, so... I'm guessing money lending wasn't the Jews' main business. What did Jews in Hungary do for a living? Well, the great majority of them were merchants, uh, traders. Most were probably in the category of peddlers. In other words, they go from village to village on foot. They sell wares to the villagers, uh, I don't know, rabbit furs, old clothes, scrap iron. Um, then you have above them the merchants who actually had a shop. And then the sector above that were wholesale merchants. They import merchandise from abroad or they 
they served as military suppliers. Now, in 1783, the Jews have a partial breakthrough and get royal permission to allow the Jews to return to Buddha. But Pesht, on the left bank of the Danube, opposite Buddha, remember, as a city, it only becomes one after 1873, um, Pesht is developing as the main commercial center of Hungary. Uh, That was a different story. They were only allowed to rent apartments there. And although they could have a shop, that was only if it had no signs, no shop window, working behind closed doors, and only in the wholesale trade. And in fact, at first, they were even unable to get kosher food. But in 1783, a kosher restaurant was opened in Pest. So if you ever go visiting and uh, they tell you we've been here since, the longest the since can be is 1783. And there was another restaurant opened in Buddha in 1787, even though the city objected. And there were soon four or five Jewish restaurants, as one does. Similar Uh, number to today. In Budapest, that is true. Yes. A Jewish industrialist by the name of Isaac Lowy decided that he would get around, he would avoid all these issues, and he would use sort of Jewish seichel. In 1823, he had bought a leather factory, but he was constantly harassed because of his Jewishness. So he wants to move his factory to Pest. But a Jewish industrialist can't get a permit to settle in Pest. So in 1835, he comes up with a new idea. He buys a large, totally uh, empty piece of land, which is north of the town, from the Count Caroli family. And included in the deed is the right of full religious freedom and the right to engage in, uh, in industry and work. And he builds his factory there. Of course, if he works there, he may as well live there. So he builds his house there. And then, of course, it makes sense to house his workers nearby, especially the Jewish ones. So he builds them the houses. And it's a schlep to go to Shrules, so you build one of them for convenience. <laughs> and he builds a new town. Wow. It's called Uypest, New Pest. Nowadays, it's obviously part of the town. And this is how he had his sort of mail addressed. By 1870, the Kehillah had... One and a half thousand by 1930, 15,000. So that's yeah, Yiddish Indeed. Is there any remnants of it today? That the place is, you mean the actual the factory? Or the Kehilla, any signs of Well, uh, it's part of Budapest. So, yes, I mean, if you go back to interwar years, for sure. Well. But going more fully back to your question about uh, money lending, money still did play a large role. In fact, by 1840, the Jewish participation in issuing and redeeming IOUs was such an important part of, uh, of financial activity in Hungary that the government actually regulated the days on which the Jews could not be asked to perform such transactions because they were religious holidays. So, you know, uh, it says, uh, in addition to the weekly Sabbath, the holidays of the Israelites are... Pesach being one of them, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on days 15, 16, 21, and 22 of the month of Nisan, usually in the month of St. George, whereas the intervening days 17, 18, 19, and 20 are half holidays. And they added, and this is in the law books, on the days preceding Saturday or the feast days, 
uh, the Israelite is obliged to declare acceptance only until three o'clock in the afternoon. Well, so, you know, so. they accommodated the Jews from that perspective, so it, they seemed economically, very... because it was to their advantage. Whereas in terms of Jewish political rights, nothing would change until 1840, even though the country generally was moving towards emancipation. And you find that even Hungarian politicians who advocated uh, equality before the law of everybody in the country, it did not include the Jews. One of them said, uh, one of the leaders of this movement, we cannot follow the examples of other countries in emancipating Jews. For them, doing so is like pouring a bottle of ink into the sea. In other words, it's irrelevant. Whereas here at home, we would be pouring a bottle of ink into a plate of soup. <laughs> words, the Jews are a contaminating element. Now, they also had certain restrictions imposed on them. Documents written in Hebrew or Yiddish were now declared um, null and void. Jews were forbidden to use Hebrew and Yiddish except in sort of prayer. And in 1787, Joseph II, the emperor, decreed that all Jews have to choose a German surname, a German family name within a few weeks. So you had tens of thousands of Jews who needed to avail themselves of a name. It was chaos. And the result was that most Hungarian Jews were assigned very simple names, referring perhaps to their stature, you know, Klein or Gross, or, or to colors, Weiss, Gelb, Brown, uh, Blau, Schwarz, and the like. Um, and these remained very characteristic Hungarian Jewish names until the late 19th and early 20th century, when many of them, you know, officially uh, made their names Hungarian, and they normally took a surname that began with the same letter, but sounded less Jewish or not Jewish at all. So now we're entering the 19th century, and it sounds like they're really restricted at that time. Somewhat. Even, I mean, politically for sure, but 1840 helped to some degree. Any Jew who was born in Hungary or had obtained legal residence was allowed to live anywhere in the country other than the mining towns, but they still have no right to vote. They cannot teach at any educational institutions, schools, universities. They cannot work at any local municipal or state offices. That's all off limits until the end of the 19th century. At a time like that, when they're not allowed to teach in any educational institutions, like you said, were they allowed to have private Jewish schools? Yes. Yes, they, they can basically do what they like in that sense. As long as you're not given any position of authority. That was what was holding the Jews back. And even liberal politicians wanted the Jews to change rather than the Hungarian law to change. You have uh, Kossuth, who eventually becomes the Prime Minister of Hungary, and he's a liberal champion of rights. But he wrote, quote, as long as the Jews cannot eat together with their fellow citizens, cannot drink wine with them, um, by solemn ecclesiastical declaration of their clergy, meaning that the rabbis allow that to happen, until then, the Jews will not be emancipated socially, even if they should be emancipated politically. And the Ksav Sefer reacts to this article by openly taking the position opposing emancipation. 
because the truth is that the majority of Hungarian Jews were prepared to give up the blessing of emancipation rather than deny their religion, at least back then in the early 1840s. At the other extreme end of of the Hungarian Jewish spectrum, however, there were those Jews who saw that emancipation was going nowhere, so they converted. And the 1840s saw an epidemic of apostasy because if a Jew converts, there's no longer any obstacles. And many Jewish converts rose to the top of their professions in the economy, in arts, in science, in in politics, in the military even. And if a Jew was willing to jettison his beliefs, he stood a good chance of rising to the top of Hungarian society. So people did that. Uh, You know, you have the Kasaf Sofer versus the converts to Christianity. At that time, you said that Hungary was controlled by Vienna, right? So how... How Hungarian was Hungary at the time, being controlled by a... So, the central part of Hungary was majority Hungarian. Um, But this, so to speak, core territory was surrounded by areas where the majority was uh, Romanian, Slovak, German. In 1840, there are 13 million inhabitants there. Only 5 million were Hungarian, and the official language of communal life, of, of you know, political meetings and documents, was Latin. So now the Hungarians make strong moves to create greater ethnic identity in the country, to, to strengthen the Magyar nation. Uh, in fact, this is one of the few points on which the both the... the the neoconservatives and the liberal opposition agree on. And they do this because they want greater rights from Vienna. Uh, They are the largest territory in the Habsburg Empire by far. And the Jews respond to this move. You know, until then, Hungarian Jewish authors, most of them probably were Rabonim, uh, wrote in, in Hebrew, in Yiddish, in German. In 1840, you have the first Jewishly authored publication in Hungarian. It's a uh, patriotic pamphlet. And in 1840, that the rabbi of the Pest uh, congregation starts to publish in Hungarian as well. And in fact, it's interesting. In Hungary, the rabbis make ongoing declaration of uh, Magyar uh, patriotism uh, of the Jews. They, they took every opportunity to preach this patriotism uh, to the king and the authorities. And when I say they, I'm including the Ksav Sofer and his son and his brother, who are all Rabonim of notable communities like uh, Preshburg or Krakow. What has Krakow, Krakow's in Poland? What's that had to do with the Austrian Empire? Because Krakow is in southern Poland, in what's called Galician Poland, and the southern bottom quarter of Poland uh, is part of the Austrian Habsburg Empire. I thought I I caught you out. (laughs) Not on this one. (laughs) Not yet. Now, with all this happening, this move towards, you know, Hungarian identity, in 1848, there is a tide of revolutions in Europe. Nationalism across the board. In, uh, In Italy in January, in Paris in February, in March in Germany, Then the Habsburg Empire, um, Denmark, Sweden, Ireland, as a result of which the Hungarian 
revolution, I mean, they called it a war of liberation, was launched in the autumn of 1848, a war. Now, non-Hungarian minorities of the country, who were a majority, uh, didn't participate, except for the Jews. They joined the Hungarian army in numbers exceeding several times their proportion, and they're fighting for a country that treated them unkindly, to put it mildly. But despite the existing anti-Semitism, the Jews of Hungary participated wholeheartedly. And when Kossuth appealed in 1848 to the generosity of the nation, the Jews, you know, they offer up uh, fortunes on the altar of the fatherland. Um, the congregation of Pest made an offering of... Uh, 50,000 florins in the form of a loan, which would be uh, a seven-figure amount in today's world. And they brought uh, silver to the treasury. The problem is that the Hungarian uprising, because it's the largest territory in the empire, it's such a danger to the Austrians that the emperor asked the Russian Tsar for help. And once the Russian army entered the fighting... The Hungarians are, you know, hopelessly outnumbered. And on August 13th, 1849, they have to surrender or capitulate. And not only did the Hungarian Revolution end in complete defeat, but there is then an 18-year absolutist rule over Hungary until 1867, and, you know, 100 people, including the prime minister and, and uh, a number, perhaps uh, 10 or 15 Hungarian army generals were executed and a thousand people are sent to they're condemned to 20 years in, in prison. So between those years, uh, Hungary suffered from a very harsh Austrian rule. How badly did this affect the Jews? It very much affected the Jews, not from the things that I've said, but in a different way. They obviously didn't create the revolution, but they supported it. So in 1849, after they reconquer Pest, the Austrian powers imposed a, a tax of 2,300,000 florins. And from what I can gather, this is over 100 million pounds on the Jews of Hungary. And that means that, the, you know, the first reward that the Jews earned for their Hungarian patriotism was to be singled out for special punishment. And it meant financial ruin for the Jews. The, the, the decree itself said that the fine was imposed because the greatest part of the Jews living in Hungary promoted by their evil manner of acting the revolution which without their participation could never have attained, attained such dimensions. So, you know, now they note our contribution to society. And you have um, Loeb Schwab of Pest and Leopold Löw of Papa, who are imprisoned for having uh, hailed the Hungarian Declaration of Independence in their sermons. However... Before the full measure of the fine could be collected, some of it, quite a bit of it was, there's an Austro-Prussian War, which ended in June 1866 with the quick defeat of Austria. What has that got to do with Hungary? Because as a consequence, Austria is excluded from the German Confederation. The emperor is now weak, and he has to give concessions to countries within his empire, 
And therefore, in 1868, we have the creation of the famous Austro-Hungarian Empire instead of the Habsburg Empire. And it gave Hungary complete internal independence. Now, by this time across Europe, all countries basically, uh, at least in the West, have emancipated their Jews, uh, Germany, France, Italy. And the Jews here will now benefit as well. An act in 1867, which was uh, succinct and comprehensive, and I quote, the Israelite inhabitants of the country are declared equally entitled to the practice of all civil and political rights as the Christian inhabitants. And this passing of the emancipation law by sort of near unanimity of both houses of the National Assembly, it created, you know, rejoicing, almost intoxication amongst the Jews of Hungary all over the country. Their Thanksgiving services in the shuls, etc. And it's great news. But with freedom come the problems of freedom. In fact, it would be almost fair to say that freedom for the Jews of Hungary killed the community. Be careful what you wish for. Because for some years, the secular leaning elements of Hungarian Jewish leadership wanted to create a central organization for Hungarian Jewry. Now, obviously, the main purpose is to represent the Jews to the government, but they would be determining the Jewish position on issues in Hungary, something which unsurprisingly, was vigorously opposed by the Orthodox communities, who knew that Yiddishkeit would be watered down in order to accommodate integration, almost assimilation, into Hungarian life and culture. Now, in 1867, the Pest congregation circulated a memorandum among the major Jewish communities in the country, proposing a national Jewish conference. Pest is the community that has just built the Dohani Temple, which still stands today in Budapest. It seats 3,000 people. The Bima has been moved to the front. There's an organ playing on Shabbos, Altayimazer, by the way. And all the government officials had been invited to the opening. So Pest was clearly moving in a non-Orthodox direction. In fact, in November 1852, the congregation readmitted the members of the uh, disbanded Reform Society in order to get the contributions of the more affluent Jews. So they sent out this invitation. 63 communities responded positively. But most uh, sort of conservatives, Orthodox, felt they had to take action of their own. And in the name of 124 Orthodox congregations, they prepare a counter-memorandum. And they found in 1867 a Society for Protecting the Faith, or in Hebrew, Shemrei Hadas, with its seat also in Pesht. And the non-Orthodox are now known as the Neologues. Now, religiously, the Jews living in the city were more progressive generally, and those in the villages are more conservative. But when there is a lot of, uh, you know, village-to-town migration it's going to result in clashes between the more secularly minded progressive Jews and the perhaps less educated but religiously more conservative newcomers. To add fuel to the fire, there's a question that is now asked about, is there a personal Messiah that will redeem the Jews or is it just a messianic era? And the non-Orthodox historian Heinrich Gretz says, you know, the whole suffering servant, it's all the people of Israel. 
And uh, the, the argument of Gretz is indicative of the type of positions that neolog Jews would take to make sure that their beliefs don't stand out too sharply with their non-Jewish neighbours. So the Orthodox rabbis called a meeting in, well, I hope I pronounce this name, I wrote it down, Nyeregiaza, I'm sure I've got it wrong. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of emails on that. Chaired by Rehuda Sad. And they prepare a petition signed by 92 Rabonim to be sent to the Governor General in Buddha and to the Emperor in Vienna to basically explain that for thousands of years, religious Judaism had been represented by orthodoxy and that basically all books of Jewish learning that existed were the outcome of orthodox scholarship. And a meeting was convened in Nagimie, which actually is particularly close to my heart because nowadays that town is called Michalovca in Slovakia, and that's where my father, Oliver Shalom, was born in 1917. Uh, but the meeting there focused on the growing danger of the Neolog movement to authentic Judaism. And it's signed by Rabonim and sent to all the congregations in Hungary. The Orthodox were also very concerned by the attitude of the more assimilated Jews in Hungary towards their fellow Jews in other parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, because Hungarian non-Jewish legislatures in their discussion of the Jewish question, made a sharp distinction between immigrant Jews, Galician Jews, or Galicianers, as they've gone down in history, and the indigenous Hungarian Jews. The latter were considered good Magyars who, you know, merited emancipation, whereas the foreign Jews were a danger for the cultural and uh, ethnic integrity of Hungary and have to be kept out. And, and the difference were, was that they were just more religious. Absolutely, yeah. They were, as a rule, mostly were Hasidim. They're wearing very distinct clothes, language. Their first language often is Yiddish. And they're considered by the non-Jewish Hungarians to be dishonest with the sort of the worst possible mentality ascribed to them. It's a stereotype. But many in Jewish society in Hungary subscribe to it. The more narrow-minded Hungarian Jews looked at these... Um, foreign co-religionists with contempt and they said you know well, they're not like us and the term galiziana becomes a term of insult that remained in use amongst hungarian jews well into the 20th century and in fact whenever anti-semitism raised its head many leaders of hungarian jewry uh, tried to argue that you know those undesirable traits that the non-Jews have found exist amongst these foreign Jews. You know, with us, we are in our language, in our behaviour, in our, we are patriotic, like any non-Jewish Hungarian. And to the extent that during World War One, when the Russian advanced on the Eastern Front, forced Galician Jews to seek refuge in Hungary. Some Hungarian Jewish leaders asked or suggested that the Hungarian government not allow them into the country because they were afraid of the sort of adverse reaction of the Hungarian people to this influx of Galicians and that maybe that would be extended to a reaction to them. So their fear was greater than their humanitarian readiness to uh, help the refugees. Sounds actually quite similar to some of the comments that religious Jews are currently experiencing in Israel. If you 
been yep. reading the news. All of these things going on in Israel, in America, wherever it is, they all have their roots in European history. It, it, you know, it doesn't start in 1948. Absolutely. So this Congress of Jews, did it go ahead? Yeah. I mean, the, the rabbis had to, tried to ensure that the remit of the Congress wouldn't include religion, but to no avail. Now, on election day, which was November 1868, 220 deputies were returned or voted in, 132 progressives and 88 religious, which was not actually representative of the percentages because even in 1880, 38% of the country was neolog and 56% was orthodox. But the Orthodox were much further away from the epicenter in Budapest and didn't travel. And also, it was only the larger towns and the, the, the religious tend to be as much in the villages as in the towns. So, in December, the, uh, this, this Congress opens in Pest and Rebezreel Hildesheimer presented the conservative position where he says that the Shulchan Aruch has got to be the basis of Jewish life. Uh, however many people vote against it, you can't vote against the Code of Jewish Law, which led to division and, and chaos. And in February, eventually, 48 members of the Orthodox opposition, they simply leave the meeting. They, they walk out, protesting against the, you know, the impending resolutions. And so when it comes to voting, there are only 116 people there, and 103 vote for the proposals. But eventually, in 1871, the Minister of Education in Hungary gave government sanction that Hungarian jury can divide into two, into two wings, one that recognized the resolution of the Congress and one that followed the rules for uh, you know, protecting the faith, the, the Shemir Adas. So you've got the Neolog and the Orthodox. And um, which one was more powerful or present so each town was given the right to vote where they wanted to go and how you know in what direction the larger places were able to support more than one if you go to Preshburg, if you go to Bratislava today, you will find built in the 20th century both a neolog temple and an orthodox synagogue because it was large enough but in the smaller places they had to go one way or the other although to complicate things there's a third group which is much smaller than either of the first two which also asserted its independence those that refused to join either the one or the other goldlocks and the three bears and they wanted to stay with the existing communal structure and they came to be called the the status quo congregations the status quo but they were never more than I got that translation right did you oh, you never know uh, they were never more than six percent of hungarian jewry and in budapest today you have three beautiful structures right the doni being the neolog and the kazinci being the orthodox uh, but there's a third one which is the uh, the status quo um temple Oh, sure, actually, I should so say. So the Dani synagogue was never orthodox? Never. Never built as orthodox. Now, that means that post-1870, there are three separate national organizations, but the statistics will change dramatically. By 1920, the neologues had moved from being 38% to over 60%, and the orthodox were now only 30%. And in fact, 
during the 1920s, the intermarriage rate in Budapest was four times the amount that the intermarriage rate in the United States were. That's how assimilated Hungarian Jewry had become in the large cities and uh, particularly in, in Budapest. I mean, what you're describing is is almost chaos. There's there's real religious differences in Jewish communities of many other countries as well at the time. Why is Hungary so dramatically chaotic? Well, you know, German Jewry also experienced a a three way split almost along similar lines. Although that's for a podcast series in its own right. But the main thing to distinguish Hungarian Jewry. It's almost in the geography. Hung- Hungary was between Jewish worlds, two Jewish worlds. Eastern religious European Jewry in Ukraine to the, the east and the northeast, and German and Austrian reform to the west. And we can almost talk about Hungary itself being split by geography. In the western part, you have the religious Jews in, in Preshburg, who are more likely to be involved in business, and they speak German and Yiddish. The middle section of Budapest, where they only speak Hungarian, and in the east, where they speak mainly and sometimes only Yiddish. So it's quite split geographically. Wow. Okay, so you've left us Budapest Jewry at the edge of the 20th century. You're yes. not going to tell us about... Uh, until present day. We will leave it there for the moment. There is, of course, another full story of the next century, but it has to include the Holocaust, so maybe we'll come back to it nearer the three weeks. But I want to end with an individual that I came across, a Hungarian Jew, with a rather interesting, although short, biography. A guy called David uh, Mandel, born in Hungary in 1780, at the age of 12, his parents sent him to you know, study Talmud, but he's a student in university in Prague by 1799 and the next year in Berlin. And in 1805, he decides to go to Paris, which he did by walking all the way from Berlin to Paris. <laughs> in Paris, he supported himself by giving lessons in mathematics and Arabic. And in 1822, the French government entrusted him with cataloguing the rare Oriental manuscripts and books in the Bibliothèque Nationale with an annual stipend of 1,800 francs. And Mandel accomplishes this huge task in one month. And after taking a salary just for that month, he resigns. And from then on, he lives the life of an ascetic in the cellars of the arsenal, surviving only on vegetables. I could see why you like him. It's interesting, that's for sure. He writes his mathematical notes on slate tables, which he erases as soon as he solved the problem. And the French linguists consider him to be a greater master than the famous Italian cardinal Giuseppe Mezzofanti, who was supposed to have spoken 50 languages. And how does it end? So one day, Mandel walked down to the Seine, the river, barefoot, to draw some water in a jar. He lost his balance. He fell into the water. And that was his end. Very unusual. Wasn't expecting that ending. No. Um, well, so that wraps up the Budapest series. Thank you very much, Robbie Hirsch. And you said we will be visiting it again at some point in the future. At some stage, yes. Do we know what we are doing next? So uh, we will be having the 
guest attendance of uh, Rabbi Zimmerman. And we will be looking at a couple of the Gedolim, one of the Rishonim and one of the Achronim. Um, I will um, look at the history and Rabbi Zimmerman will look at their outputs uh, potentially in Chesh and Mishpat, in financial areas, uh, which still are relevant to this day, the, the rulings that have come down through the ages. And I think it will be a, a very interesting uh, pair of episodes. Yeah, that's very exciting. We're very honored that he agreed to come on board. Thank you very much. Please send all feedback, reviews, questions to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Rabbi Hirsch generally responds to all of them. And we should be speaking about recent feedback in the next episode or two. So please make sure you send it before then. Thank you and good night.